You're listening to a Sunday sermon from Seven Mile Road Church in Melrose, Massachusetts, just north of Boston. To check out more about us, go to sevenmilemelrose.com. All right, so our, our sermon is Authority in Action. We've read through our text. And to kind of get a sense of what we're talking about, I, I want to talk about an important element to help us think about authority. And that's the all-important location of the kitchen. All right? So when you think about authority and action, I'm not sure if the kitchen is your first place to think about, but it, it, it comes to mind for me. So a question for you is, who has the authority in the kitchen? Like, who, who runs this place? Who determines what happens in the kitchen? It's an important thing. Now, you may think you have a ready answer for that. I see hands already being raised, fingers being pointed, but you know, let's, let's work through this a little bit and make sure we're clear who really has authority in the kitchen. So one of the key questions to ask yourself is, who determines the expiration of the leftovers or the milk? Who says this is too far gone, it has to go? Like, that, that person has some authority in the kitchen. They decide whether that's going to be dinner tonight or whether that is going right in the bin, right? Who determines, like, the role of, of, of the kitchen? Like, what you're allowed to do in the kitchen in that location? Uh, does anyone allow toys or books in the kitchen? Can a puzzle be in the kitchen? These are important things. Like, if you haven't crossed this boundary yet in your kitchen, you'll find out if you bring the wrong item into it. I've learned yard equipment does not belong in the kitchen. Things like that are really essential to, to get down, and you find out from authority uh, what you can do. Uh, the other elements that come up, right, is, like, the use of things in the kitchen. Have you done this? Like, you think that knife could be used for this job. No question. But you might be informed by the authority of the kitchen that that knife is not used for that purpose. Okay? Actually, there's different knives for different jobs. Just a pro tip, throwing that one out there. Apparently, you can't use all knives for all jobs. It's not, not how it works. So as that authority is on display in the kitchen, and you see these actions, you start to understand, oh, that's the person who's in charge of the kitchen. That's the person who decides where someone comes, who can go, what's conducted here. What is the appropriate way to treat this place? I can remember my, my grandmother as a kid just shooing people out of her kitchen. It was just entirely her domain. You weren't even really allowed to pass through when she was in her domain. And so you see authority on display in something as innocuous and, and common as our kitchen. Well, as we look into this text today, we get a sense of Jesus' authority in action. It's not about the kitchen, but he's talking about the temple. We start to see where Jesus shows his authority on display. And his authority in action redefines our worship and our access to God. He really shows us what does it mean to have that authority. What does it mean for us to actually worship God? And how do we know if we have access to him? And so as we get into this, we ask ourselves kind of two key questions today from the text. As we get into it, we're going to ask, what is Jesus saying about the temple? And what is Jesus saying about his authority? Pretty straightforward stuff. You read through the text, those are the questions. You've got to make sense of them if we're going to know what God intended from this passage. So let's dive right in, get into what Jesus is saying about the temple. So this is in chapter 19 of Luke, and it's the first couple verses there in verses 45 and 46. So we have them there on the screen for you. Here's the scene. Jesus comes into this, the, the temple area. We know he's been in Jerusalem just over the last uh, couple of sermons. We've touched on that. And he's coming up to the temple. And as he comes there, he does something. He drives out those who are selling, these sellers from the temple. And then he has some statements there to help us understand this action. So when we think about Jesus in the scriptures. He fulfills kind of three Old Testament offices that are really important as we interpret the Bible. We know that Jesus is a king. 
And so all the kings of Israel are smaller kings that kind of point to Jesus being the ultimate king. We see Jesus also as a priest, and all the priests of Israel had functions that pointed to a better priest that would be Jesus. And also, thirdly, Jesus is a prophet. So he's a prophet, a priest, and a king. And as a prophet, all the prophets pointed to the one great prophet of Jesus who would be coming later. And we see in this wor- the words that happen and the action in this text that Jesus is functioning in his prophetic office. So it's an interesting scene if you've uh, watched any kind of Jesus films or looked at some children's books or uh, perhaps uh, have, have looked at paintings of the Renaissance era, things like that. This is a scene that gets depicted for us. So you may have in your mind kind of a visual image to think about, oh, this is where Jesus like cleanses out the temple. It says he, we have a very uh, brief description here in Luke, but if we add in uh, Matthew or Mark or John, we, we start to get a, a little bit fuller description. And as we look at that, we see that Jesus is... Uh, physically acting and moving people out of the scene, those who are doing some selling in there. So you might have some initial kind of dissonance with this passage as you start to hear it. You may be picturing Jesus as being angry. You might be picturing uh, utter confusion happening. Uh, One of the things that I want, and and perhaps even violence, I should add, and as you think through that particular uh, scene that you have in your head, I want to draw your attention to this text. And then you can trust me in Matthew and in Mark. And in John, we actually get no ascription of Jesus' emotion. We have no description to give us access to this historical event to tell us that he's angry. We don't hear anything about true violence that's happening in this moment. So what I want to do is I want to pause us from all that other stuff that we bring in and import to this text and let the words of the text that we're actually our access to this historical event to be able to see what it tells us. So... I think that's a deduction. We could say there could be anger here. That could be what's happening. We could see violence. But it's interesting that that's not the emphasis. That's not the point that's being drawn to. Instead, what we see is that Jesus' action is on display. We see what he's doing, not how he's feeling in this, in this moment. And as he acts in this moment, he's removing these folks. And then what we're given, not only is that activity that we're able to see and have revealed for us, but we also have words. Jesus' direct speech is included here for us to have an understanding of how to interpret how to understand what Jesus is doing. So I'll just say briefly, was Jesus angry? It's possible in this this place. Um, There's no emotion assigned, but we have seen that that is maybe a way to interpret these words and understand that. It's challenging to read emotion into a a text where it isn't described. So if Jesus was angry, uh, was he angry at sinful, sinful people doing sinful things, or was he angry for his own benefit, his own gain? Uh, We would say it was the former and not the latter. He was interested in God's glory and what was supposed to be done in this place. So that would be where his anger would be displayed. It's unlike our anger oftentimes, right? Where we're angry about our own comfort, our own control, or our own rights. That brings much of our anger on display. That's not what we see here in Jesus as he's focused on God's honor. So Jesus didn't sin in these actions. And whatever his potential emotion was in those, we can trust that he was doing God's work in what he did, and he isn't a display of anger. So no one should see an application of this text is when you don't like something, go flip a table. That's not the application of this text. So what do we make of this? All right, so if that's not the application, what do we do with these actions? We have it described for us. He's entering the temple, he's driving out these people, and then he makes these statements. What, what is he doing? We read this, we understand that what he's doing is he's doing a prophetic action. As a prophet in Old Testament Israel, they not only had words that they gave, they also did things that were odd things that you wouldn't expect, things that grabbed attention, or maybe to say it a different way, put our attention on something else 
to see what is on display in that setting. So that's what we have in Jesus' actions here. He's prophetically demonstrating something, and then he uses words to help us understand what that is. As we look at those simple words there at the end of verse 46, we have uh, an important concept. Uh, I think I have it on the next slide. It's called intertextuality. So intertextuality is a word we use to try to describe the way that uh, different texts relate to one another and that there's understanding from different texts. So think about this. When you go into the library and there's all these books, right? And you're looking around, there's tons of books. Some of you have been to the library, I think, right? Um, as you look in the library, right, you see all these books. Think about how many of those books are aware of the other books in the library. Is that weird? Think about it, right? Some of those books are absolutely aware of the other books in the library. They're referencing them. They're citing them. They may have words in the text of the pages of those books because they're aware of a previous book that was written that has something to do with that book. Intertextuality just is a word to talk about texts that are aware of other texts and the way that they use that awareness. So think about it. We can do this in literature all the time. We can mention a character. Like if we mention Reepicheep, or however you want to say it, this little mouse in C.S. Lewis and the, the Narnia Chronicles, right? You get a feel for that, that mouse. You hear that word, and immediately you have images, you have stories, you have ways that that relates, that just a passing reference to that character imports so much understanding of what it is. We use phrases, like if you think about uh, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And that frame of reference immediately draws you into a work of literature to make you understand a setting, a scene, a, a demeanor that's being imported into the text. Well, these references of intertextuality rely on the reader or the hearer to know that other text, right? You have to know it or you don't get it. You don't, if you don't know who Reefachief is, then you're like, that was a weird word he just said, moving on. Uh, if you know it is, and you're like, yes, I love that guy. That's amazing. And it imports it into it immediately. So the Bible is full of this phenomena, referring to characters, phrases, quotations, and even geographical places. So what happens is a later author or speaker can call those previous texts to mind to help you understand their current situation, their current text, their current meaning. And Jesus is doing here all of that in this moment where he's flipping tables, using a whip, moving out money changers. He uses these words of deep intertextuality to understand what he's doing. So let's try to put ourselves into that to understand where Jesus is going with this action. So what he's doing is in those phrases, if you see that on uh, verse 46, he takes us actually to, uh, yeah, that's helpful, thanks. Um, He puts it, my house shall be a house of prayer, is the first phrase we'll look at. That relates to Isaiah 56, is what he's drawing from. So as we look at Isaiah 56, and we have that on the screen in in, uh, a good block format here, here's the words that are coming from Isaiah the prophet. So he's like an 8th century prophet in Israel. This is the time when the kingdoms are divided. There's a southern, there's a northern kingdom. And Isaiah is putting out this really positive prophetic vision toward the end of his his book. And as uh, he writes, here's these words from uh, chapter 56, verses 3 through 5. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, who who uh, who chooses or chose the thing that pleases me and holds fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So let's pause there for just a second. We have, a, we have another slide there in just a second. So look at the very beginning of that slide. What Isaiah is saying is that there's an expectation, a way that things should work. 
What it should be is in God's way, in the way that the temple was set up, in the way that worship was done in Israel, foreigners and eunuchs, they had no place in the temple. And what Isaiah is saying here is he's reversing that concept. He's saying, actually, in this future hope that we have ahead, there will be a time when eunuchs, those who are deformed or have had uh, defaced in one way or another, are brought into the worship of God. When we think about foreigners, those who were non-Jews, they've been used to being far away and not a part of God's people. And yet there's a future hope when actually they will be brought in. And that's the hope that he's reversing those, those words where he's saying, don't let them say that. Don't let them say what would be the expected outcome in this time. So let's go to then the next few verses. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And there's our key phrase that Jesus ends up using in Luke as well. So what, what is happening here, all right? We've talked about the eunuchs, the foreigners. They're excluded, and yet Isaiah has this dimly lit vision that we don't get a lot of detail on, that kind of doesn't read really cleanly, that there's this future where eunuchs and foreigners are going to be able to worship God. They're going to be brought in. Instead of being outside of the community because of their, their birth and their defects, instead they're brought in, they're invited, they're a part of the people of God. So that hope reverses the way that things were. And we see that that's what Jesus is mentioning as he redefines worship. So like the promise of Isaiah of eunuchs able to have access to God, Jesus makes this a reality himself. He makes worship not about the temple, but about himself as the way, the truth, and the life. So much so that the gospel of Jesus, as it's played out, we actually see this exact thing on display with a eunuch, right? Think about the gospel of Luke. The sequel to Luke is the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, we hear of a eunuch being led to the gospel and being baptized by Philip. The Ethiopian eunuch is brought to the gospel. So the words of Isaiah are on display through the disciples of Jesus. But what about the foreigners, those non-Jews as well? Throughout the gospel of Luke, we're seeing that Jesus has a mission, a heart, not only for Jews, but for the whole world. And we've seen Jesus speaking to centurions, to women, to those from other uh, nations. And he's removed the restrictions to have worship and access available to them. So in Jesus' prophetic action in the temple, he's making true the reality of Isaiah's inviting of the nations here in Isaiah 56. He's saying that this place should actually be a house of prayer, or we could call it an international house of prayer. He's bringing and inviting the nations of God together. That's the vision that Jesus has for this place, and it's blowing minds. That's why he's moving tables, he's shifting people, he's pushing them out. Get the commerce out of here. This is supposed to be an international place of prayer where all peoples are being brought to God. Still struggling with it a little bit. Isaiah is a little bit dense at times to go with it. So I want to take us back to the kitchen just for a moment and think about a sourdough starter. Some of you got one, right? You've been there, or you've been there, and we won't talk about it. It was an interesting time, right? Sourdough starter. Okay, so the vision here of what Isaiah is putting out there is really just like the yeast and the, I think it's called a lactic acid bacteria, the lab. These things are supposed to coexist in perfect harmony and some amazing science, if you get that thing, right? And the way that they work is it creates this wonderful, perfect equilibrium where they're in peaceful coexistence together. That's kind of like what the vision of Isaiah is. 
He doesn't see the separation of the haves, the have-nots. He doesn't see a separation from those who are ble- uh, blemishless, if that's a word, without blemish. There we go. Um, or from the Jewish people only. He envisions this place where all peoples of all situation are able to come and be brought into worship through Jesus of God. He envisioned and designed the worship to be a peaceful coexistence of worshipers, Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles, together in worship. So that's what Jesus references. Here's my vision. This is what the temple is supposed to be like. I use this really quick word of intertextuality to bring this passage together from Isaiah 56. But then he also has a negative statement in those words. He also mentions what has happened in this context. And he says, in, back in Luke, in, in chapter 19, he says, My house should be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. A den of robbers. So again, he's bringing to mind another text from the Old Testament in the prophetic order. And he's bringing us to Jeremiah chapter 7. So in Jeremiah chapter 7, we have what's called Jeremiah's temple sermon. It's focused on the temple. It's kind of a critique of the temple of the day. So it's very fitting that he would draw this text for us. We see in in verses 3 through 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. What are the deceptive words? This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. This is the best verse to have to translate if you ever have to do that, because you have that repetition of three phrases over and over again, right? The temple of the Lord. So in this, we're seeing that's almost a slogan that was present for the time. A hope that the people had. Deceptive words. Hey, this is the temple of the Lord. Nothing bad's going to happen here. This is the temple of the Lord. We can trust in this place. We don't need to be fearful of any other nations. This is the temple of the Lord. Verses 3 and 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. And there they are. I think our next slide takes us a little bit further in the chapter. He says, behold, you trust in these deceptive words to no avail. He goes into a litany of their actions, not matching what their words are. They say they're trusting God. They have this hope in this temple, but their actions show that their behavior is quite different. Their ethics are are, uh, removed from what they're saying they believe. And so because of that hope in the temple, they're saying we're delivered, but they only go on and keep doing their uh, abominations. And then the question comes out there at the end that Jesus is referencing. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers or thieves in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So there's the indictment of the temple during Jeremiah's day that he sees actually the people have a a, a divorce, a segmentation between their ethics and their behavior and what they're saying is their belief. They hold to the temple... Like it's, like it's a talisman, like it's something to trust in, like it's a lucky charm that they can continue to believe in. And because they have the temple, nothing bad can happen to them. They have God's presence. So you see how there's a subtle belief in the reality of God and the trust in him, but it doesn't carry through to their actions, their behavior. They just hold it on to something that means that their nation can continue. So as Jeremiah brings these words to bear on the people, he makes an emphasis to show that dichotomy is not fitting. And actually a place that is supposed to be that house of prayer that was mentioned in Isaiah as this place of robbers, violent men who are doing the opposite of what the place actually stands for. They're hiding there and seeking violence and seeking personal gain instead of being uh, for the temple's good and what's to be accomplished. They're the opposite of what the symbol is. This, this divorce of ethics and belief is the same thing we read about from uh, Jesus' half-brother in the book of James. He says in uh, the end of the first chapter of James, If anyone thinks he is religious 
and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is uh, undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphan and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So we tend to think of temple or worship as something of ceremony. There's an action, there's an activity, a way that we should be doing worship. James and then Jesus' words hearkening back to Jeremiah show that, no, that's not at all what matters. The ceremony itself is not the distinction. The distinction is true belief that shows itself in true action, showing that our ethics and our belief are on display in the way that we live. So as Jesus knocks over some tables, maybe comes in there with the whip, clears these people out, he says these words, this is what worship is supposed to look like. This place is supposed to be a house of prayer and not a den of thieves. So then our story kind of continues. You have that first question kind of hopefully answered for us. We go into the second part there and uh, the remainder of chapter 19 on to verse 20. We start to see a little bit more of the scenes. You see in verses 47 and 48, Jesus is still in the temple. He's teaching. He's doing this daily. And you can see the scene as the camera goes in, the chief priests, the scribes, these principal men, the high people, they're just gritting their teeth. They can't believe what Jesus is doing. He's in there every day. He's teaching the people, and they're looking for a way to bring him down. Every day they're looking for it. And what happens? They can't ever find an opportunity. The people are just flocking to Jesus. Love this phrase. It's, it's right there, hanging on his words. They're so enraptured by Jesus' teaching. Just imagine for a moment what that would be like to hear Jesus teaching directly. It would be amazing to have him stand before you, giving his words, utterly changing people's perspective. We go then to chapter 20. And as he says, one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up and they said to him a question. Tell us by what authority you do these things or who is it that gave you this authority? So it's our question from the beginning. Like, who really is the authority in the kitchen? They're bringing this question to bear. They've seen Jesus' actions in the temple. They're seeing the people flock to him. They're asking the question, how can you be doing this? What is your right to do this type of thing? And this is the start in chapter 20. There's going to be five controversies that these leaders have with Jesus throughout this chapter as they bring out. All of this is going to build toward the animosity, the the treachery toward uh, the murder of Jesus. And as we get to this point, we see this as setting the stage and getting that rolling as they're asking for the authority of Jesus. Then you have kind of this amazing repartee between Jesus and these, these leaders there, right? It's just so well-crafted, wonderful reading of dialogue as you go through it. He then answers their question with a question, and he says, tell me about the baptism of John. Was it from heaven or was it from man? So he puts them on display for who was probably the most controversial figure of the day. There was this madman running around, John, who was baptizing people by the Jordan, dressed like nobody else, had words like nobody else had heard before, and they're wondering, Jesus is putting back on them, yeah, what do you do with that guy, that controversy, controversial figure that was out there? And they have this, this kind of inner dialogue to go about how to handle that situation. And they recognize that there's no good answer here, right? There's, there's two losses. Either you admit that he was from God and then you missed out. That doesn't make you look like a good spiritual leader. Or uh, you admit that he wasn't and then they face a mob, uh, mob end to their day, right? So there's no good win here for the people. And they recognize that. So they go with the, as, as some of you have heard, at least parents, right? The, I don't know. Uh, answer, when there's no good answer, that's usually what, uh, what you should put out there, right? 
So you have the, I don't know, that's on display. So why is Jesus bringing John the Baptist to bear as the question? Why does that answer this point of his authority? If, you, if you're scratching your head on that, that's what, what I've been pondering a little bit as well. So there's two things that Jesus is doing with that answer. One, he's showing himself as the true successor of John the Baptist, right? He is the one that John was waiting for. John was the forerunner. Jesus is the follower. John was the prophet telling about the Messiah who would come. Jesus in this action is saying, yeah, I'm the Messiah. It's, it's me. That's what you have to recognize in this moment. That's why he hearkens back to John. And secondly, he's also acknowledging that anointing, that baptism. You see the words actually uh, reference the baptism of Jesus in what he says about John. And so the baptism of John was a demonstration of the spirit. We understand that. That was what was on display. It was like a, an anointing in effect of his work. And so he's almost like a David in this moment, right? He's been anointed, but he's not yet enthroned. Jesus will be king, and he has all authority as the king, but he hasn't yet taken that throne and publicly displayed himself as doing that. So he has all the authority, but he's not yet visible in that, in that position or seat. And so that's why he brings John as a reference and his baptism to bear. And so that's why Jesus has made his point just by asking the question, and he doesn't go any further uh, after they refuse to answer that question that he gives. So there we have our two questions answered, right, laid out for us. What was he saying about the temple? Okay, what's he mean about his authority? We got those two points points nailed down. So then by application, what, what do we get from this, all right? So number one, we see that Jesus includes all peoples in worship. So this is astounding. It's, it's remarkable. Uh, much of the New Testament tries to drive home this point that we take for granted. But the reality is that Jesus has cared for all of us. That Jesus has intended us to come to him in worship. And so when we think about our love for others, our inviting for others to know God, there's a reality in which we are looking for all the peoples of the world to do that. There can be no segmentation, no discrimination, no push against anyone from coming to know Jesus. It's the very opposite of God's intended message that he gave to us through Jesus. Secondly, worshipers' behavior and ethics mean as much as ceremony. We all, in all denominations and all practices and work, can be very excited about ceremony from time to time. But this brings us back that even the best ceremony, even the best liturgy, even the best program cannot in any way remove us from the responsibility to have our ethics and our behavior follow Jesus' teaching. So when we think about how we conduct ourselves as the church of God and we recognize what he's doing on us, we always have to look back. We have to see how is my behavior, how is my ethical treatment following the teachings and the life of Jesus? Where do I see myself stepping away from that and examine that together to get back on the right track? And then finally, God's authority alters religious expectations and acceptance. I mean, it's, it's hard to believe, but Jesus' authority was divine in origin which gives him the right to change everything. Everything that we saw in the Old Testament, and it does beautifully fit and foreshadow for what Jesus was teaching. But the reality is that it changed a lot of things. And he had the right and the way to set that authority on display and gave an understanding for how it should be handled. So when we think about our religious experience and our expectations, the way that one is known and accepted by God, let us remember that we're not in that place of authority. We follow closely the teachings of Jesus as he has set up the way to follow him. So we walk closely behind Jesus and try to understand what do we focus on? How do we order ourselves? What do we focus on in the worship and and giving access 
to God. So the two questions are answered. We talked about the temple, the authority. We see Jesus' authority in action redefines our worship and access to God. So much like we started with the signs of authority and action in the kitchen, we see that the mark of Jesus as the one who defines worship and access to God. He makes the way and invites us to have access to God and worship him rightly. So let us consider his authority in action, his authority in action as Jesus continues to teach us and bring us along as we follow him. And we actually continue in worship together. Let's pray.